21 sins, okay? That's a lot. Uh, That's a lot that we have before us today. If you study the text in your community group, uh, if you read the text this week, uh, you know that these verses, these verses at the end of Romans are basically a list of sins, 21 of them. In a way, we're breaking my Redeemer world record of 20 points from just two weeks ago, aren't we? We'll look first at verse 28 and then verse 32. They'll serve as an introduction to Paul's list. And then we're just going to go one by one. We'll spend a little more time on some of them than the other. But we're going to go one by one through the 21 sins listed in verses 29 through 31. So first, verse 28. Paul writes, And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. Are you having some deja vu here? No, I, I am. This verse sounds eerily familiar. Why? Well, because we've been down this road in Romans already. This is a third mention of this horrifying judgment of being uh, given up to one's sin, where God in judgment actually leaves us in our sin. We stay in it. We're consumed by it. We face earthly consequences of it. Evil is its own judgment. Staying in the evil, facing the consequences of it, that's the judgment. That's what we see here, and in a sense, that's the worst kind of judgment. Well, the word acknowledge in verse 28 is stronger than to simply say no. They did know God, or at least know who he is. It's not that they didn't know God, But as one scholar says, they thrust him out of their circle of acquaintance. They deliberately rejected God. They deliberately preferred the creation over the creator. And God gives them up in their sin to a depraved mind. There's a a word play here that's a bit difficult to translate. They didn't approve God. So God gave them a mind that couldn't approve anything. Or as Doug Moose says, because they didn't approve God in their thinking, God gave them over to minds incapable of approving what is right. So Paul's catalog of sins now, 21 of them, I think they're meant to be taken in two ways. One, I think they're meant to be taken one after another. But I also think they're, they're tempt, I think it's also right to just take them all together as one batch or one bunch of 21 sins so we feel the weight and we feel the gravity of what it means to select sin over God this is what life looks like when God says okay go for it have it your way well this is humanity apart from God and God allows humanity to swim swim even deeper in their sea of sin. Look at how our passage ends in verse 32. Here's what happens if we stay on that trajectory. If we stay on that trajectory of verse 28, look at verse 32. Though they know God's righteous decree, they know God, they know his law, they know his decree, even though they know that, and that those who practice such things deserve to die. Do you see? They even know the penalty. But they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. Remember, these sinners, remember, every sinner who's ever walked on the the face of the earth wasn't acting in ignorance. They knew they were wrong. They were breaking God's decree, his law, his statutes. The penalty was death. So here, as he writes to the Romans, 
21 sins, all of them struggling, sinning in some way. They knew it was wrong. They knew the penalty was death. And yet they gave hearty approval to others who practiced such things. This wasn't a shock to them. They knew who God was. They knew the law. They knew the penalty. What's a shock is what they do with that information, isn't it? One commentator points out the word for death is used 22 times uh, in, in Romans. Most of any New Testament book, 18 of those occasions, death is tied directly in with sin. There is a just penalty for our sin against a holy God. It's puzzling enough that they sin, but it's mind-boggling that they take pleasure and they give approval to others who practice them. They are, they are sin's cheerleaders. It's, it would look like planning for our first Sunday prayer meetings or our anniversary service and to have members come up front and share testimonies of an amazing week or an amazing year or an amazing 13 years of sin. To share how wonderful it was to be greedy or to be prideful, testifying of the joy of their adultery or deceit, how they cheated at work or cheated at school. These testimonies would, 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 be, um, uh, would serve to encourage the rest of us to sin, just like the testimonies of godly service, evangelism, and humility inspire us. Now, verse 32 is sick. Church, there's a reason we don't sing songs with lyrics like, Amazing Sin. How sweet the sound that blessed the saint like me. We don't sing those songs because sin doesn't bless us. We don't rejoice. Church, we don't celebrate sin. It's damaging. It's never loving to parade sin joyfully. It's a supreme way of rejecting God. You're defining good and evil. You've replaced God with yourself. God's word said there's a better way. God's word tells us there's a better way. And he gives us 21 sins here to avoid, to kind of wake us up in verses 29 through 31. He writes this to the Romans. He writes this to us today. It's not an exhaustive list. It's not any sin and every sin that you could think of right now. Doug Moo makes a great point that the focus in these 21 verses seems to be on social sins, the evils we do to one another. Because earlier in the verses uh, that were read to us this morning, as verse 18 and onward, we see idolatry, we see sexual sin. Now we see kind of so-called social sins, sins that seem to have direct social impact. The late John Stott breaks down the 21 into six sections. Most scholars see at least three sections in these verses. In a way, I'll do the same, but we'll break the third section into four batches, which is ultimately what, what Stott does. As we walk through this list, I just want to encourage you, church, to uh, take a special interest in your own heart. As we walk through these sins one by one, to take a special interest in what's going on in your own hearts. It's easier to think of someone in the church or someone in your family who exhibits such sin. It's far easier to see the speck in someone else's eye than to see the plank in our own. Husbands and wives, and maybe uh, tempting for you to play the game of elbow 
church during the sermon to just nudge your spouse with your elbow just to make sure they're listening to a particular sin. Let's reject such games today and let's listen for our own hearts. But it's easy to hear a sermon and apply it to someone else's life, isn't it? That's not hard to do. Let's do the hard work and the heart work for ourselves. Are there any areas of our lives where repentance is needed? Well, looking at this list, how could we not be convicted of of something? 21 areas. Or we could say it more strongly like the late Dr. R.C. Sproul did when he wrote, homosexuality is just one sin Paul describes in this section. We looked at that last week. Sproul continues, if we can make it through Paul's entire list without feeling pangs of conscience, we are psychopaths. Tough words. But I think true words. Unfortunately, there is something in these verses for everyone. Well, let's start with the first batch of sins. Verse 29. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. Section begins really with four general sins pointing to human depravity. No small or half-hearted sins. I mean, do you see the all-encompassing language here? All, not some, not a few, not most, but all manner or all kinds of unrighteousness. And then an umbrella word for sin, evil. Evil and malice have similar meanings. Ongoing callous behavior, which harms others. Paul links the same two words in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, where the church at Corinth had approved gross, immoral, sexual sin. Covetousness, it's a desire for more, it's a craving for something you don't have, to yearn for, thirst for, wish for, long for, to to have your eyes set on something that you do not have. It's the pursuit controlling your heart, even at the cost of others. What does covetousness look like for us in the UAE? Well, what comes to your mind when you think of coveting in this cross-cultural culture? Coveting someone's home. Maybe it's bigger, nicer than yours. If only you could have a flat like that. Coveting a promotion, a job title. Maybe just a job at all. Other people's success is a steady Drip of discontent in your heart. Success at school, youth, tweens, children. What is it for you? Sports, exam scores, friendships, opportunities. To all of us, maybe you scroll through Facebook or Instagram, and by the end of it, you realize you have spent 20 minutes coveting the best of other people's manufactured lives. More days off. A dinner at a particular restaurant. You've seen traveling pictures and you think, I want to go to the Maldives. I want to travel during midterm break. And at the end of last year, there were several members of this church uh, who were posting amazing pictures of their time at the Gulf Theological Seminary Israel trip. 
I saw these pictures and I personally had a choice to make. Rejoice for my friends or covet their experience. I didn't always choose rightly. Now, of course, this is a matter of worship, isn't it? When you covet, you tell God, God, you've got it wrong. God, I'm not thankful for the provision you've chosen to give me. You've got it wrong. I want this other thing instead because I know better than you. No, coveting gets at what's going on in our hearts. It's always a manner of worship. It's a matter of worship. And who are we worshiping? Are we worshiping the creation or are we worshiping the creator? Our broken vertical relationship with God always affects our horizontal relationships with one another. And so the pursuit of that promotion could cost you time, valuable time with your children or with your church family as one example. Maybe going into debt, shifting to that flat that you can't yet afford means you have to work more and more hours taking you away from ministry. It could be anything. Well, Paul continues with five more sins in the next batch. He gets more specific from a a bit of an, an umbrella term for evil. Now, in batch number two, he gets more specific. Look again at verse 29. They were full of envy, murder, strife, Deceit, maliciousness. These next five words modify the word full, not just wicked, but full of wickedness. Full of relational brokenness. Envy, the word in Greek, has a similar meaning to covetousness, which I just mentioned. But it's a little closer to jealousy, which turns into an ill will towards other people. Have you noticed you'd be far more content with what you have if you didn't know what others have? Let me just say that again. Did you ever think or wonder, maybe just even right now, just consider that maybe you'd be far more happier with what you do have if you didn't know what someone else had? What do I mean by that? Well, this is why oftentimes looking at social media makes us feel worse after looking at it. You're okay with your life until you see someone else's life. I know I've felt that way. But if we stay in that direction, Proverbs 14 says that envy will rot our bones. The Greek word then for murder actually sounds a lot like the word for Envy, very similar. They're often found together in the scriptures, perhaps because murder flows out of envy often. The first murder in the Bible flows out of envy. We have Cain, we have Abel. Abel makes a sacrifice before God. God accepts that sacrifice. Cain makes a sacrifice before God. God doesn't accept it. Cain is jealous at the approval given to Abel, and Cain murders his brother. Murder is the taking of someone's life. However, we can't stop just there. If we know the remarkable Sermon on the Mount, what does Jesus say? Jesus says that anger, unrighteous anger towards someone is murder in your own heart. Murder is really the final outcome of the next sin, strife. When we think of strife, we think of quarreling, we think of contention, someone who likes to fight with their words, or, and listen to this, Someone who fights with their words or with their silence. 
It can manifest itself either way. We might normally think of strife as a fight or as an argument, as, as, as the raising of voices against one another. But this isn't only for those who yell, only for those who raise their voices. We're all guilty. Strife could also be caused by the silent treatment. Number one, by not speaking up and standing up for what's right, but, but by shunning someone or leaving someone out. Filipino culture is a famous word for this, a, a, a tampo. Perhaps your language has a word for it too. It's giving the cold shoulder. It's avoiding someone. It's shunning someone. It's, it's a punishing via silence. You could cause strife with your words. You could cause strife with your silence. Friend, how is your heart with anger, with envy, with strife? How about deceit, tricking someone, lying intentionally? Do you speak truthful words? How about more examples? Do you exaggerate outcomes at work, at church? In general, do you overinflate the good? Do you underestimate the bad? Do you protect your honor? Do you run from shame by hiding truths from others? Do you share false truths to bolster your own name in others' eyes? Well, this batch ends with maliciousness. We've already had the word malice. This is an intentional wickedness, seeking the harm of others, the idea of a habitual action. Well, let's move to the third batch. It's really just two sins. These two go together. They are gossips and slanderers. Similar meanings, a twinge of difference. If you look at each word carefully, gossips literally means whisperers. Secrets quietly spread. Secrets quietly spread harming someone else's reputation. Slanderers, these are openly speaking harmful words about someone. Secret gossips, publicly defaming speech. Both can be used with or without intent to vilify other people. Scholar Charles Cranfield writes, both these words denote people who go about to destroy other people's, represent, or other people's reputations by misrepresentation. Cranfield says both guys and slander are wicked in some ways he says that the secret gossip the the whisperers can even be more evil because that person is unable the one being whispered about is unable to even give a defense maybe not even knowing that the gossip is happening at all proverbs 12 tells us reckless words pierce like a sword when you stab someone with a sword, you can take the sword out of them, but what you can't take out of them is the wound you've left behind. There is a residual hurt. Proverbs chapter 18, verse 21 says, The tongue has the power of life and death. Church, our words have power. Our words have power. How are your words? Think back just for a moment, just to even... Last week, maybe even just this morning, this year, this month, 
We really need to change that sticks and stones song, don't we? Sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will always hurt me, right? Words hurt. Some words more hurtful than others, but words hurt. Sticks and stones may hurt, but in many ways, words hurt more. That's how that jingle should go. Gossip and slander, friends, can destroy churches. Do you know how many people it takes to split a church? Let me tell you right now. It's not half the church that it takes to split the church. Not half the congregation takes just two people. One to start spreading slander and another to listen to it and fail to confront it. That's the power of our words. That's the power of our gossip and slander. Do you see what I'm saying? It's gossip and slander, at least two at fault. And maybe like me right now as you're listening to this, you're convicted because you've been on both sides of the equation. I know I have. Sometimes the gossiper or the the slander is sometimes the one who listens and doesn't confront it. I was convicted as I studied this text this week. I was convicted of one particular relationship where I had been safe to slander around. It went on for some time. I listened to slander from a couple of people over a long period of time, and I failed to confront it. Never confronted it. And sadly, I even joined in with the gossip and slander at times. Something didn't feel right afterwards, after those, those conversations, different than my other relationships, but I failed to stop it. I failed to confront it. I was part of the problem. You see, church, we need to be convicted of our gossip and slander, but we also need to be convicted of ever being safe to slander or gossip around. We can't be safe to slander around. We have to stop it. Others of us simply need to talk less. Don't send that email. Don't send that message. Erase what you've written and stop and pray and pray some more. Wake up the next day and pray again. Ask yourself if your words match up with the words of Paul in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 29. Let no unwholesome words proceed from your mouth, but only what is helpful for the building up of others according to their needs, so that it would bring benefit to those who hear them. Do your words bring benefit? Do your words bring grace? Do your words bring help to others? Do they build each other up? Do your words build up or do they tear down? And if they tear down, have you repented of them? I was really encouraged when uh, last year a member of our church came up to me and confessed the sin of slandering. Uh, But do you know what this man did? He went to each person that he had slandered about somebody else, that he went to each person where he had been slandering, and he went to them and asked each of them for his forgiveness. I was so challenged by by this younger brother to reflect on my own life and to see in what areas I needed to repent of and who I needed to go to and apologize to. Well, our beloved member and, and elder on sabbatical, I see Pastor Daniel sitting there. He put it like this in one of our elder meetings. Such wisdom here. He says, and he said, if it began with your mouth, it should begin with your mouth. Let me just say that again. It's so good. If it began with your mouth, it should begin with your mouth. Let me say that. Well, I'm not going to say it a third time, but let me explain. 
What Pastor Daniel is saying is that if words were your problem, then, then that you need to now use your words to make amends. If you sin with words, then repent with words. If it started with your words, ended with your words. It began there, right now it should begin there. Well, continuing on in verse 30, that's too much conviction for me. Let's move on to the next batch of sins. How are we doing so far? Anybody convicted? I'm preaching this and I'm thinking of more sin in my own life. So I'm guessing if you're sitting there and you're listening and you're not having to, to preach it, you're thinking of some sins as well. I hope so. I hope the Lord is convicting you because all of us are guilty, aren't we? So listen for your own heart. The next four, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful. These go together because they seem to be examples of different forms of pride. Haters of God, a compound word found only here in the New Testament, a pride of knowing better than God does, of despising God. They think God is a joy stealer, that God is holding back from them. Insolent is to feel superior. It's to treat others as beneath you. Now that could be, uh, you think, because of your wealth or your status, your intellect, your job, your citizenship, your, your ethnicity. It could be anything that you feel that you are above someone else. It's the famous Greek word hubris, often translated pride. Haughty, it's close to pride, also translated at times as arrogant. A certain contempt for everyone except oneself. It's, it's to be puffed up. To have a high opinion of one's self. Boastful. This word derives from a word meaning wandering. Roaming without rest. It harkens back to merchants with something to sell. Boasting in, in their unsubstantiated claims. Overpromising about their product. Under-delivering with their product. Pursuing their own reputation making their greatness known, being boastful, boasting about themselves. Friend, ask yourself, are there ways that I'm deliberately advertising my own good works to others? Are there ways that I'm trying to deliberately seek ways of letting others know how great I am? Dallas Willard put it this way when he says, our goal should be to let God be our public relations department. To entrust our reputations to God. If God wants some great deed to be known, well, he'll let it be known. One way or another. We leave our lives in the hands of God. We let him be our reputation managers. We Leave our reputations to him. That means we need not become overly defensive or overly boastful. If God wants something known, he'll let it be known. The previous sins, they're all one word in the original language. Now Paul uses two words to describe the next couple of evils at the end of verse 30. Look at this next batch, just two here. Inventors of evil disobedient to parents. Inventors of evil, this could be a certain ingenuity in devising wrong, making up new depraved ways of sinning. It could be in your own life, just taking one sin to the next step because you get bored with the same old sins. You invent new ones for yourself to enjoy. The ones you've enjoyed, they're too boring now. 
They don't bring you the same joy. They're, they're stale. You move on to new ones. I could take a number of examples. Let's just take adultery here uh, first. No one commits adultery the very first time they, they're tempted with lust. There are a thousand baby steps before getting there, inventing or starting new ways to enjoy what's not yours to enjoy. First, maybe an unchecked thought life, a longer glance than appropriate, a click on that tempting article, reading something you shouldn't read, looking at a picture, then a video, a conversation, a hardening of, of your heart towards God by not reading the scriptures and praying. A distancing from loved ones, a one-on-one conversation. I could go on and on, but because no one wakes up one day and looks at their diary or calendar and says, at 2 p.m. today, I think I'm going to commit adultery. Nobody wakes up. Nobody thinks that way. It's after the inventing or the starting of one evil or another evil. It's a thousand baby steps in the wrong direction until one day you find yourself inventing or moving on to some other sin. Now, friends, we have to stop and, at, at baby step number one and turn away from sin and take a thousand baby steps towards God. Disobedient to parents. Now, all the parents in the room, we say what? Amen. Amen. Right here. We're thankful for this text. Way to go, Apostle Paul. Kids, listen. Teens and youth, listen. Disobedient to parents right here in the list. Look at what Paul says. He says that to be disobedient to parents is a kind of sin. But this is not just a sin for youth. It's a sin for all of us. We were all children or tweens or teens once. Some of us had a good parental figure in our lives. Others had a bad one. Some had none. But many of us had parental figures in our lives. Many of us have some type of parental figure in our lives who's still alive. None of us can take these verses lightly, this word. Read Deuteronomy chapter 21 later on today. Let me just say it doesn't end well for those who are disobedient to their mothers and fathers, their parental figures, their grandparents, whoever raised them. So youth and tweens, Kids, what does this look like for you to be obedient to your parents? It doesn't mean to be obedient to your parents into some sin. But Lord willing, your parents are raising you well, though not free of sin. At least with good intention. How are you to be obedient to them? How do you respond to your parents? Obviously, your parents are not perfect. But what is your general heart posture towards your parents? Do you think you know better than them? Do you listen? Do you obey? Do you obey joyfully or do you obey begrudgingly? The little roll of the eye as you turn away. Do you sneak around their backs taking just little liberties and convincing yourself that it's not really a lie to your parents? It's not a lie. It's not a lie if it doesn't hurt someone, if it, if it isn't so bad. Uh, it's still better than so-and-so. I'm still better than my, my friend over there, that person. A redeemer kid, tween, teen. If this describes you, repent of your sin. Go to your parents. Ask for forgiveness. Turn to Christ. Well, how about those of us who are older? We have maybe older parents. 
who are still alive. What about us? Well, maybe we too need to go back to our parents to repent of some sin from when we were younger or even as we've grown up or there are ways that we've dishonored them or been disobedient to them. There's so much we could say about this. Obviously, our relationship to our parents is different now as we've grown older and they've grown older, but what does it mean to show honor and obedience to them today? The answer to that will be different for each of us. We should all be asking ourselves that question. Are we being obedient to our parents? Well, finally, the last four areas make up all of verse 31. Foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. One scholar says these four rhyming words are the rhetorical high point of this sin list. It's the climactic finish. Four negatives. Foolish means without intelligence. Those who act stupidly. Faithless is concerned with the breaking of agreements. People who don't keep their word. Heartless. Those without natural affection. And ruthless. Found only here in the New Testament. It means without pity. It means totally absent of mercy. It means without grace. Without mercy. Without pity. It's one who shows no mercy. It's the very depth of evil. The final sin in our 21 sin list. Friends, 21 sins. We've gone through each and every one of them. Do you see yourself anywhere in these verses? Anywhere at all? You may have seen in the news this week, Prince Harry came out with a tell-all memoir or autobiography. It sold the most copies ever in its genre for the first day of release. I think almost doubling second place. Church, these verses, these words are our autobiography. This is our memoir. Maybe not every single word, maybe not every single sin, maybe not in the same way, maybe not in the same season of our lives, but these words are our autobiography. None of us can sit here and say, no, no pastor, not me, not one. We can't because Paul tells us in chapter 3 of the book of Romans that none are righteous, not even one. There's not even one who's ever walked the face of the earth apart from Jesus. Who could say they were fully righteous? Chapter 6, all have sinned and the payment of our sin is death. The wages, what we deserve is death. There's nothing we can do to save ourselves. Nothing we can do to rescue ourselves while the penalty is death. In essence, we're already dead. Faith is the only way of escape. And to be saved, we have to die to ourselves and trust God. Let me close with a vivid picture of this, a, a picture that, that our family saw this last week as we watched the story of the Thai cave rescue from 2018. You might remember the 12 football players and their young coach were trapped in a cave in northern Thailand. People praying around the world, thousands flying in to offer help and aid. It had been an ordinary day. The boys had gone out to play football together. They visited this cave many times before. On this occasion, they had gone to write their names on a wall 
a kind of initiation for the new players. It was a tourist cave, national park. However, on this particular day, while in the cave, a week or two before monsoon season, a week or two before rains were expected, while the boys were deep in the cave, the rains came. Fast and furious. The boys deep in the cave were stuck. It flooded. There was no way out. For the next nine days, scuba divers dove into the cave, into the waters, under the waters, looking for these boys, looking to try to find them, to save them. Nine days, no sign of the boys, no sign of life, no sign of them anywhere. Well, finally, on the tenth day, a couple of divers found them. Miraculously, they were all alive. Ten days alone on a small cliff, four kilometers from the entrance. You could see there, no food, no shoes, one flashlight. That day, nothing could be done to rescue them. But there was lots of discussion on how to save them. The rescue effort involved 10,000 people. 100 plus divers, 100 government agencies, 900 police officers, 2,000 soldiers, 10 helicopters, 7 ambulances, volunteers pumped over 1 billion liters of water out of the cave to help with the water rising to try to keep these boys safe. During the 10 days, they, the boys worked hard to try and save themselves. They had found rock fragments on this small cliff, and every day they dug with these rock fragments, and they were able to dig a five-meter deep hole, a feeble attempt at saving themselves. Being found was great, but that was only half the problem. How could they be saved? Well, the journey to the entrance, it took six hours for even the most experienced divers. Some adult divers had nervous breakdowns. They went through great anxiety as it is such a long and dark route. Strong currents, there was zero visibility in the murky waters, extremely narrow paths. Some of the paths, think about this, were as tall as 38 centimeters, as wide as 72 centimeters, or as narrow as that, barely enough for a body to squeeze through. Well, how to save them? Could they, could they teach the boys how to swim and how to dive? But then remember, even the most trained adult divers would panic and, and have uh, anxiety attacks. They couldn't make it. If they tried uh, to take the boys on that route, they would likely panic. They would lose control, perhaps costing both their life and the diver's life. They tried to find another exit, but no exits were found. Could they wait four months for a monsoon season to end and just dive and bring the boys some type of edible uh, edibles to eat just to keep them alive but then the threat of disease possible infections and then the monsoon rains rising the water levels there were no options except one the boys literally had to do nothing to save themselves the plan a doctor an anesthesiologist with 30 years of diving experience was flown in the plan one by one they put the boys to sleep just like you would for surgery 
The boys were given two injections in their thighs. They took other oral medications to put them to sleep to suppress saliva production so they wouldn't choke. Those injections would have to be uh, further uh, injected every 30 minutes during the six-hour trip. One by one, the boys were put to sleep under anesthesia, and a diver literally had to drag their lifeless body for six hours through the cave and out of the cave. And miraculously, all were saved. Every single one of them. An astonishing story of rescue. And friends, as we come to the end of Romans 1, as we come to the end of these 21 sins, friends, in a way we are like these boys. Our paltry attempts at saving ourselves is like digging that five-meter deep hole trying to save ourselves. What we needed was someone to bring us through those four kilometers of dark and murky water. These boys contributed nothing to their rescue. They got themselves lost. That's what they did. But they contributed nothing to the rescue except to trust these divers, to allow themselves to be injected and to be put to sleep, to trust that the divers would carry their bodies to safety. Friends, all of us are trapped in our sin. 21 examples in our text today. Maybe you feel overwhelmed listening to these verses. Maybe this isn't the best news that you've heard in a long while. Maybe you feel condemned. Maybe you feel trapped. Maybe you see yourself in these words and you're feeling the condemnation of God. Well, in many ways, on our own, all we've done is dug deeper into our sin, further and further away from saving ourselves. No way of rescue when all along what we've needed is we've needed God to come to us and to drag our lifeless bodies to safety and to be given new life. And he did. Oh, fellow believer, we can rejoice at the end of a text even like this because he did. Because he did. Fellow believer, Jesus came to us not just through a cave, but Jesus came from heaven to earth. He found us in our darkest hour. He took our lifeless bodies and through his death on the cross and through his resurrection from the dead, he brought us out of the cave of our sin and has given us everlasting life. Friends, that is good news. Redeemer Church, his mercy is more. His mercy is more than these 21 sins. His mercy is more than all of our sins combined. His mercy is more. We deserve death and yet he rescued us. And I love what we sang earlier this morning. It ties in with our text and it ties in with the, uh, the story of the Thai cave uh, children there. You alone can rescue. Who, O oh Lord, could save themselves? Their own soul could heal. Our shame was deeper than the sea. Your grace is deeper still. You alone can rescue. You alone can save. You alone can lift us from the grave. You alone came down to find us, led us out of death. To you alone belongs the highest praise. Oh friend, do you know Jesus? Do you know him? Do you know Jesus as your Savior? Not just know him in your head. Youth, maybe your parents have taken you to church all your life. Maybe you know in your head, but do you know in your heart? Maybe you've been invited by a friend today. Maybe you've been sitting here for months and months, but do you know him? Do you know him in your heart? Have you believed? Do you have a relationship with the heavenly King Jesus? Do you know Jesus? Are you a follower of Christ? I hope so. 
I hope so. I hope after a sermon like this, after seeing this list, I hope you turn to him because he is our only hope. He is our only hope. Turn to him. There's nothing you can do, just like those boys. There's nothing you can do except to surrender all. To surrender all to the one who could save you. To entrust your life into his everlasting loving arms. And he will carry you home. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we need you. Oh, Lord, we need you. Apart from you, we can do nothing. Apart from you, we're like these verses described. Gossips, slanderers, inventors of evil, foolish, faithless, heartless, and ruthless. But Father, salvation was and is 100% your doing. Thank you for carrying us into your everlasting arms. We rejoice and we are glad that we're, we're with you now and we will be with you for all eternity. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.